You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hey, horse lovers. It's Tell a Friend September on the Horse Radio Network, and we need your help. We know you love our show because you get so much value from it. So we're asking you to spread the word to all your horsey friends. Tell them about us at the barn, on the trail ride, in the ring, and of course on social media. It's a free way to help support the show and spread the love of horses. And while you're at it, drop us a review on your podcast player. That really helps us out. Thank you for all your help in Tell a Friend Month. We couldn't do it without you. Here are some ways to spread the word. Share our social media posts on at EQ Businesswomen on Instagram and Equestrian Businesswomen on Facebook. Tag your horsey friends in our posts. Mention us in your social media posts. Share your favorite shows with your friends or leave us a review on your podcast player. Thank you for your help. We appreciate your support of the Horse Radio Network. We're here to help you learn more about horses, connect with other horse lovers, and have fun. So spread the word and let's grow the horse community together. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor. From Equestrian Businesswomen. And you're listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we speak to Lauren Reicher about her career in public relations, her involvement with the Special Olympics, and how horses and riding changed her life. Lauren Reicher is a 24-year-old woman born with cerebral palsy who started therapeutic riding at age three by the recommendation of her surgeon after a reconstructive hip surgery. After graduating from therapeutic riding, she took to riding recreationally and competitively with Hunter Jumper Barnes on Long Island. In 2021, she graduated from Brown University, where she co-captained their NCAA equestrian team and earned her bachelor's degree in education and public policy. Following her graduation, she worked as Director of Development at Special Olympics New York, where she raised money to help create the Summer Show Series, a program which gives the equestrian athletes of Sony the opportunity to compete alongside the larger hunter-jumper community at A-Shows in their own signature equitation division. Although she now works in public relations at the American Thoracic Society, she still spearheads the Sony Equestrian Program and turned professional in September 2022 to continue growing this program and cultivating the next class of riders with disabilities. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to get to be able to talk to you more and learn more about your background. You know, we've gotten to know you over the past two years at the Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular, but um, yeah, we're excited for today. Yeah, I can't wait. It was so great to see you guys at Saratoga, actually for the second time. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it's always such a good event. So happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really um, a good opportunity for people to to hear more about you know what what kind of work that you do, and I was really impressed. And I thought, you know what, we need to have you on the podcast so we can like really dig dig a little deeper into it because we had limited amount of time there. Uh-huh. So can you? I know you've been involved with horses since you were young. So can you kind of talk about that and you know how that's kind of helped you and shaped you throughout your life? Mm-hmm. So. I started therapeutic riding when I was 
just about three years old, um, super, super young. And I got into therapeutic writing um, because at the time, um, I had just had a pretty major hip reconstructive surgery. Um, and as part of my rehab, my rehab specialist recommended that I start therapeutic writing um, to help my brain start to recognize my legs as two separate legs instead of one kind of mermaid tail. Um, so that was kind of how I started therapeutic writing. Um, and, you know, the the physical benefits that I gained from therapeutic writing, you know, definitely speak for themselves. I mean, I used to be in a wheelchair. I couldn't take reciprocal steps. Um, and, you know, within 10 weeks of starting therapeutic writing, I could slowly start to take reciprocal steps with a walker. Um, so, you know, the physical benefits definitely speak for themselves. But, um, you know, the thing about being involved in horseback riding that really, really shaped me was by far the socio-emotional, um, you know, benefits that I gained from being part of a barn um, and developing relationships with fellow riders. Um, and it's, that was especially true after I kind of graduated from therapeutic riding and started to ride with hunter jumper barns on Long Island. Um, you know, I, I, for as long as I can remember, I've been, the, I've really been the only person in a hunter jumper barn who looks like me. And so, um, you know, that has been true in most environments in my life, such as going to school or, or, you know, different social things. I'm usually the only person who looks like me. But when it came to riding and being part of a barn, that was the most kind of blended in that I felt. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the other girls who rode in the barn, who took lessons, who were boarders, always just saw me as a fellow horse lover um, and as a fellow horse girl and as a fellow barn rat, especially, <laughs> um, you know, and that was that kind of feeling of inclusivity that I got from being part of a team in the sense of being, you know, that your barn that you ride with is your team, even though riding is in many ways an individual sport. Um, and I really, that was the only really outlet that I had to kind of get that camaraderie and that kind of sense of sportsmanship. Um, and then of course, you know, being, developing your relationship with a horse um, is so interesting because it teaches you this very, very important principle about learning to work with a teammate who is different from you, who doesn't speak your language and actually doesn't speak at all. Um, and so learning to accept one another and find kind of this common language where you can speak, you know, work together, um, you know, has so many different applications in life that, um, you know, by as, as much as the physical benefits, um, you know, really worked wonders on me, it was really the social, social and socio-emotional um, aspects of doing equestrian sports that shaped me. Did you have a hard time transitioning from the therapeutic program into a regular barn? Um, you know, I want to say not really. Um, the way that it kind of happened was I did therapeutic riding for a long time. Um, and the guy who was my instructor approached my dad and said, I think that she's physically sound enough now that if you wanted to bring her to my barn, um, you know, this was just a volunteer gig for him. He had his own clients in his own barn. Um, you know, I think I could help teach her to ride like an able-bodied rider. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the only thing that was probably different for me was that my progress was slower than most people who are picking up riding. Um, you know, I probably was on the lunge line for a lot longer than, than most folks and learning to post was going to be difficult. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, learning to 
get more control of my body so that I could learn to post, that I could learn to hold the reins, sit up and on my own and such. Um, that was definitely a transition. You know, when I had lead walkers on both sides of me, I was locked in. I wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But back then, um, take, you know, take me learning to canter. That was something I wanted so bad. I wanted to canter. I wanted to be a canterer. Um, <laughs> and um, that that one step that the horse takes when it gets into the canter was enough to send me flying off the back. Yeah. Uh, and if the horse, you know, felt that I was unbalanced and slammed on the brakes, I'm going right over the front. My balance was so uneven that those little tiny things that most people can get over somewhat quickly, you know, it it took a mo- probably a year or two of me just being on the lunge line and getting over that one step before I ever started to canter on my own. Um, mm-hmm. Just little things like that, you know, that was definitely a transition for me because it, it required a level of being in tune with my body and, and my balance and my sense of where I am on the horse um, that, you know, is not natural uh, for me, but, you know, made a big difference in, um, you know, my, my overall soundness. And how old are you when you left therapeutic riding and went to a barn? Um, I pro- I, the, I think I was about seven years old. Okay. Um, so about four still years really of therapeutic riding. Yeah, still really young. Um, yeah. But, you know, it took four years of me just walking with sidewalkers before I was I had the kind of central gravity to kind of sit up on a horse on my own at all. Mm, wow. And how did that transfer into your everyday life? Like it it, it made your quality of life better? Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, in addition to therapeutic riding, um, and even after therapeutic riding, the number one activity that defined my weeks was going to physical therapy. Mm. I went to school and then I went to physical therapy every single day after school for three, four hours. I mean, I was, I was on like a 15 hour a week schedule for physical therapy. Um, and as beneficial as that was, you know, the, the kind of immediate physical benefit um, of horseback riding, you know, it shaped how I could perform in physical therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sensation of my body moving with a horse could not be replicated in physical therapy. The way that my muscles would relax and the way that I, I could tune into each limb was not be able to be replicated in physical therapy. Um, so, you know, while physical and occupational therapy worked on fine motor skills and kind of fine tuning the you know, the big picture was that the physical therapy and equestrian sports needed to work together and complement one another. So I could make that progress. Um, Mm. And because of how much progress I was making from the two of them, that meant that, you know, eventually I could kind of upgrade from being in a wheelchair to having crutches, being able to soundly move around on crutches meant that I could keep up with my friends if they wanted to go to the movies, if they wanted to go out and do something. Um, So that being able to progress physically in riding led to my sort of independence in my other aspects of life. Yeah. Wow. And how such a huge thing. Yeah. Uh, How often were you riding then in the therapeutic program? Just once a week. I rode once a week, almost through, I want to say until I was probably 16. Um, I, I never had my own horse growing up. So mm-hmm. I only, I was a lesson kid forever. 
Um, you know, I, there were times in my life where I was the only lesson kid in the barn. Every, every single one of my friends and peers had a, their own horse or they had a half leash or they had something. Um, and so, you know, the other big thing was that my mom is about as stereotypical of a tiger mom as they come, you know, (laughs) school came first, then physical therapy, then horseback riding. Um, and so that was low, a low priority for my parents, even though they understood the, the, you know, the physical benefits, because I still had physical therapy. You know, it wasn't yeah. like I was getting no activity. Um, so I rode once a week and I had to earn it. I had to earn it in grades. I had to earn it in behavior. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until I was probably like getting ready to apply to college and whatnot, where my mental health. And I was so stressed out and I was so kind of neurotic about everything else going on in my life that it became apparent to them that, you know, maybe it makes sense for us to add twice a week, a Saturday and a Sunday, um, Mm -hmm. just to kind of, you know, not only relax my body from sitting at a desk the entire day, um, do, you know, doing my work and such, but also to kind of get my head in the right place. So it really wasn't until I was probably 16 or 17 that I had earned kind of the right to ride on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, And, um, when I, my, (laughs) my mom promised me, and this, we wrote it down on like a restaurant paper napkin when I was 15, you know, 14 or 15, that I would be allowed to get my own horse if I got into an Ivy league college. That was the (laughs) the deal breaker. Um, so I worked my butt off and I, I, I wanted that horse so bad. So when I got into Brown the next day, I got my first horse. Um, ah, that's so <laughs> funny. I was I was not playing around. I was like, I need it. So I, you know, when I finally got my own horse, that's when I started. I had earned, you know, the ability to ride, you know, as long as my schedule allowed. And at that point in my life, I was physically sound enough where I had dramatically cut back on the physical therapy. And I was maybe doing, um, you know, up to five hours a week. Um, mm. So. I had more time then, you know, now that, now that the pressure was off of being in college and my, I was physically sound enough where I didn't need that, that intense, you know, replication of physical therapy every day. That's when my schedule started to allow for more and more horse time. And then when I was off at college and I had my horse boarded, you know, only a couple of miles away, that's when everything started to change. And I had my own independence to be able to go and ride as I saw fit. Right. Wow. It's amazing though, that just once a week, First of all, I'm I'm so impressed at all you've accomplished with just riding once a week. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that 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 would help so much Mm -hmm, um, with your physical therapy, that that horseback riding, it helped so much for there was one time that I insisted that my physical therapy. So what happened was we I was riding on Long Island. Um, My parents have. Uh, a house on Long Island that, you know, we mostly really only are there on the weekends or um, in the summer. And so we, I insisted that my physical therapist come for a weekend. And what happened was I went for a riding lesson. And then as soon as I dismounted off the horse, um, I got down on the ground and I was like, I want you to kind of like stretch me out and feel how loose um, my muscles and my body is right now. And she was appalled. You know, that's not the, the kind of main symptom that I deal with my, with my CP is that my muscles are so tight. That's mm. why I couldn't separate my legs. I was just clenched all the time. Um, 
It's why I could barely use my right arm and my right hand. I, I couldn't pick up a pencil with my right hand because it might, I was like in a fist like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, that feeling of how my body felt, I was like a wet noodle after I got off of a horse. Um, wow. And so the first time when my physical therapist felt that she was, it, 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 it almost didn't make biological sense to her. You know, it was just amazing. Hmm. Wow. That's cool that you could, I mean, somebody who had so much experience in dealing with that, with so many different people and to give her that knowledge too. And right. for her to know how much that helps, that's really cool too. Mm-hmm. And so we know that, um, you know, after school and you know, you've had different jobs and you worked for the Special Olympics of New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think some people kind of lump therapeutic riding or Special Olympics, or they don't know the difference between Special Olympics and para. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about kind of the differences between those? Sure. Um, so Special Olympics, when you think of if I were to say like the special Olympics, a lot of people think of a singular event, like the special Olympics. Right. Um, And while that exists, what special Olympics really mostly is, um, is an organization that operates 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. Um, The way it works in the U S is that there is a national kind of mother organization, um, special Olympics dash, you know, national. um, And, each state in the U.S. has its own statewide Special Olympics organization that oversees all of the athletes and the sports, the training, the competitions, and all the activities in that state. Um, so I worked for Special Olympics New York. Um, those, you know, New York is kind of our geographical perimeter, um, and not just in New York City, but also we're, you know, Special Olympics New York is in Long Island. It's in the Capital Region. It's in Buffalo. It's in Ithaca. Um, you know, it's all over. So. Um, the main difference between Special Olympics versus therapeutic riding versus, you know, paraquestrian is that Special Olympics serves athletes with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Now, many of those athletes can develop physical disabilities as a result of having an intellectual or developmental disability. But, you know, the distinction is this organization serves those with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Paraequestrian sports serves those with physical disabilities, whether those are chronic or environmentally gained. Um, And then the way that therapeutic riding fits into all of this is that the Special Olympics equestrian program that we offer is not technically therapeutic riding. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's in at certain levels, it might kind of mimic what you think of when you see therapeutic riding in terms of athletes having leaders and sidewalkers and and whatnot. But, um, you know, Special Olympics does not claim its equestrian program to be therapeutic riding. Um, and so the the focus of Special Olympics is to prepare all of its athletes for competition. Right. Um, and, you know, kind of zooming out even more, um, Special Olympics mission is to provide completely cost-free training and competition for all of its athletes. That's across 22 different style sports, wow. um, equestrian being one of them. So that's kind of the main distinction. Um, the other thing, you know, just going more into the kind of cost-free element is that because Special Olympics is a sports organization and not an equestrian organization, all of its 22 sports operate on a designated season. 
So we're not mm -hmm. offering our equestrian program all year round. We're operating as like a kind of summer fall hybrid sport. Um, okay. And the way it works is that um, athletes that want to compete in equestrian get a 12 week season. Um, so special Olympics will, they don't have their own kind of like barn. Um, you know, special Olympics doesn't have a barn that it runs, but they'll kind of outsource training, um, and go to local therapeutic riding programs or hunter jumper barns and say, if you have capacity for, to train a handful of special Olympics athletes, we can pay for one lesson per week per athlete for up to 12 weeks. You mm -hmm. train them for competition. Um, and so that's kind of what they do. So our athletes get up to 12 weeks of training. And then there are a number of regional competitions um, that can qualify them for the fall state games, um, which is kind of the culmination of the season where all the different fall sports culminate in Glens Falls. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a statewide offering of all the different athletes who compete across the state in that sport. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then from there, do they go to a national competition? Mm -hmm. um, okay. I don't. I don't exactly know um, what the steps are after the statewide yeah. um, kind of championships, how they, exactly they advance to um, kind of like super regional or zone or, or national. But yes, there are stepping stones from, you know, performing well in the states, going to the national level and then even potentially going to, you know, the world level. Mm. Cool. And do you know how many um, uh, Special Olympic equestrian athletes there are like in the whole country um i don't know about the whole country in new york alone there's got to be north of 50 i would say mm -hmm. um but i don't know not every state offers every sport so right. some states i know don't offer equestrian um and i think i mean i would imagine special olympics texas has hundreds you know right. of equestrian athletes but right. I, I don't know if it's the same in new jersey or I, i'm not really sure you've worked with the Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular to offer um, classes for Special Olympics riders, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we did with that was, um, you know, growing up for me, I was very lucky that I got to compete in horse shows. Um, and on Long Island, there is a special show series on Long Island for riders with disabilities to compete in. Mm -hmm. Um and so I had had the opportunity to compete in that. And then as I kind of progressed out of that compete, you know, just as an amateur or as a junior. Um, so that program is geographically restricted to Long Island. And also, you know, it does have kind of like a division cap um, for how many divisions it offers and at, at what level. So my kind of thought was, there are so many therapeutic riding programs, not only all over the country, but even in, in New York alone. Um, you know, there's a, there's this massive population of riders with disabilities who I'm sure would love the opportunity to compete. Um, mm -hmm. What if they don't live on Long Island? Um, what if they are jumping crossrails at home and want to compete at like a short stirrup level? Um, right. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a designated division at every major horse show just for riders with disabilities? Um, and so we started with piloting this program under Special Olympics. So we went to a couple of major horse shows in this in New York, you know, starting with Saratoga, Hit Saugerties, and the Hampton Classic, um, and said, could you offer an exhibition division during your rated horse show 
for Special Olympics athletes. So it wouldn't be completely open for entry, but you know, enrolled Special Olympics athletes would have the opportunity to go compete at a rated horse show kind of on the same stage as the larger horse showing community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how the summer show series program was born. Um, And we, at first, really wanted to focus on giving riders at the top of the sport the opportunity to go and compete in jumping at a horse show. Um, At this kind of Special Olympics local competitions, you know, despite the fact that there are riders who have the ability to jump, they never got to at shows because of different, whether that be facility limitations, availability of horses, you know, liability reasons, you know, because some of these shows take place at therapeutic riding facilities. Um, Wouldn't it be great to give these, you know, these athletes the opportunity to go jump. So we started with that and, you know, kind of restricted it to athletes who could go and jump. And then this year, the second year of the program, we also added, um, a pole division. So, you know, we're sort of slowly cultivating the next class of riders up to that level. Mm, That's great. I actually, I was going to ask you, um, have you shown at the Hampton classic? I have, um, (laughs) I did. So the program for riders with disabilities on long Island, um, the acronym is called Lazard. Um, so I did that twice. Um, or wait, I did it three times. I did it in 2009 and then I did it in 2015 and 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of took a hiatus from horse showing. Um, and I didn't compete again in the Hampton classic until 2019 where I showed for the first time ever or not ever, but I was there for the first time as an amateur, um, mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. in, and not in the Lazard program. So, um, by that time, I'd ha- I had my own horse, um, and I was and I was comfortable. Um, so I decided to just show in the adult amateur hunter, uh, eighteen to thirty five under saddle. Um, I wasn't sure yet if um, it was the right environment for me to start showing over fences, um, mm-hmm. even though I had kind of shown over fences locally up until that point. Um, Hampton Classic is a big stage and there's, there's, it's, you know, there's a lot of kind of stage fright that kind of at the Hampton Classic and it's deserved. It's an amazing horse show. Um, but I decided to just kind of have a nice entrance to showing as an adult amateur. Um, and I showed, I showed, I showed my horse in the, yeah, an adult amateur hunter under saddle. I did it. And I also, I think I, I think I did the adult equitation flat as well. Um, and both times I will say, I didn't ribbon, but I made the second cut. You know, they, they send people mm-hmm. into the middle of the ring and they send mm-hmm. people out, made the second cut. So that was very, very rewarding for me. Um, so loved that great experience. And now crazy enough, last September I turned professional. Um, so I haven't, I don't think, I don't, I haven't shown yet as a professional, but that that's soon to come. I imagine. Cool. Oh, that's really cool. I I usually go out for the the first day of the Hampton Classic when they have those classes. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. I have a friend who has been a sponsor for it before, and so she kind of started um, asking me if I wanted to go. It's part of my territory for my right. job at Decra, so um, I it's a cause that I like to go and support and hang out and for and sure. Like, it's, it's amazing, an amazing it's horse really show. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and with that, I know. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about like, how do you think that horse shows can be more accessible to uh, disab- people with disabilities? Mm-hmm. Um, where I imagine this program going, um, the summer show series for riders with disabilities that I've been working on at Special Olympics is 
I would love to see it eventually kind of take the form of like the USHJA outreach program. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that so many shows, you know, find, find room in their prize list to add in the, basically the entire outreach kind of roster of offerings. Um, I would love to see it get to a place where, you know, there's like an outreach style program for riders with disabilities that offers levels from walk trot through the two nine, or I don't know, does it go through the three foot? Um, So, you know, something like that um, where, you know, you can, if you, if the horse show, you know, is able to work it out in the schedule this way, at least at Saratoga. And they even did this at hits. They were able to kind of, leave one entire day of the show, especially, you know, at these week longs to just run the entire outreach program from top yes, to bottom. Right. Um, and so if it's able to ever work out like that, that would be so amazing. Imagine just like this kind of designated series for riders with disabilities running alongside like an outreach day. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would be so great. It's not because, you know, that there's kind of this misconception that there's no demand. Um, and, you know, what it really boils down to is not there being a lack of population, but a lack of opportunity. So yeah. if you, it's kind of like, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, you know, I think if we can start by just getting the offerings out in the prize list and getting folks onto the showgrounds, like I I feel confident that it would just pick up and pick up and pick up. Um, so, because I mean, if you think of, I'm I'm very involved with Gallup NYC. This is a therapeutic writing program that gave me my start. That's where I started therapeutic writing. Now I'm on the board. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been involved, you know, ever since I started writing with them. And pre-pandemic numbers, really, just to give you a sense of, you know, just perspective, um, Gallup NYC was serving 650 writers per week wow. Um, wow. in five boroughs of New York. So imagine there being kind of like a therapeutic to a show pipeline, you know, Mm -hmm. where there are so many therapeutic writing programs who serve so many people. It's just a matter of how can we, you know, come up with a horse show format that is except, you know, that is able to maximize the number of people who it can be offered to without, you know, without compromising the integrity of the sport. That's kind of the main principle. Um, And then, you know, once that is kind of up and running, we can start to address things like, does every horse show need a mounting ramp for wheelchair users? Um, You know, does every horse show need wheelchair accessible porta potties? Um, You know, do we need somebody, um, you know, at each in gate who can, you know, provide sign language instructions, you know, from the judge? Um, you know, those types of things will start to get ironed out as more and more folks start to appear at horse shows. Mm. Yeah, that was actually going to be a question I wanted to ask you because I have a friend who's in a wheelchair who runs her own barn. She's a trainer, but a lot of times she hesitates to go to facilities that she doesn't know because she doesn't know if mm-hmm. she can get in the bathroom and, right. you know, if she can wheel around. And so I right. was going to ask you that that has to be a consideration, right? Yep, exactly. And like, if you think about, let's just say hits, for example, massive showground, super right. spread out. Um you know, can we prepare, you know, stabling where it's a, a, a barn or a tent that's close to the ring, right. um, you know, making sure that there are golf carts available for folks with disabilities, you know, those types of things, depending on, you know, the size and, and um, the amenities of the showground. Yeah. 
Do you think that deters people at this point um, from going to shows or do you think that they would come regardless, work it out and then, you know, then be able to like, as more, as more people come request those things? Well, I'll just tell you guys this. We just went to hits, um, you know, first week of August and I had tried to make golf cart reservations and they were completely sold out. Hmm. And I thought to myself, how on earth can I go to hits without a golf cart? Right. And so I started thinking to myself, well, you know, we have a couple of extra stalls. What if I brought a horse just for my own transportation? You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just trying to get creative. Um, and it, you know, oh it, ended up, it ended up working out where we were able to get a golf cart um, because we, you know, very generously were able to partner with Deaver, you know, the golf cart company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they really hooked it up for us. But, you know, without that, I would really have to plan ahead. There's no way I could walk mm-hmm. from any of the tents that hits, no matter how close they are. It's way too far. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it wouldn't make me not go, but I'd have to plan for, do I need to bring a 30 year old pony who doesn't show anymore just for me to be able to use as transportation to get from place to place in the horse no, show? That's crazy. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I was just kind of thinking about those types of things. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure it ex- if it exists for me, I'm going to make sure it exists for other people. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, you know, I've heard from other uh, disabled riders that want to make kind of a para division in um, jumpers. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously para dressage is huge. It, it's in the Paralympics. Um, you know, the U.S. has really grown their program, their international mm-hmm competition program um right to be on par with the best in the world um and i feel like there's so much opportunity in the hunter jumper world for that right as well um you know the movement for para show jumping to be recognized as a paralympic sport is amazing um mm-hmm. you know it you know i'm sure that there are tons of riders out there who you know have every intention of participating in that um and, you know, it should be added as a Paralympic sport. I know that it's a long and, and tedious process to get that done, um, but it definitely needs to happen and it needs to exist. For me, on the other hand, I have no intention of not only doing the jumpers, but to, to compete at a Paralympic level at yeah. all. Not my yeah. prerogative. Um, what 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 I really care about and, and the work that I'm doing is more of a grassroots approach, yeah. You know, making sure that we're able to get offerings um, for riders with disabilities, not just at the top, um, but you know, at all levels of the sport and at every major horse show. Well, and that's really if they want to make it a Paralympic sport, that's mm-hmm. the only way that it's right. Going that's to how you're going to cultivate talent that, up to that yeah, level. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to find riders and and be able to get them the experience in the lower levels in order to work up to that. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what our federation, um, and USHTA could do to, Mm -hmm. to start building something like this. Right. Um, you know, that definitely, you know, so far I've had conversations with the folks at the USEF and in the USHJ and they are overwhelmingly supportive of -hmm. this, um, which is really, really nice because, you know, I talk about this all the time with my boyfriend, Eric, who we met in college and he played college football. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I explained to him is that like, 
it's just amazing because if you think about it, you know, I would imagine that the NFL has no interest in a, in in a random, you know, just some person who wants to do something. You know, it'd be one thing if a superstar, you know, multi Super Bowl winner champion, you know, goes to the NFL and says, "This is what I want to do." But you know, it says something about the nature of our sport that you know somebody who just wants to do something for the USEF can open up a conversation with them, right? Um, you know, and that our sport is, you know even though it grows by the day, it's intimate enough where, you know, those conversations can happen. And if you want to reach somebody um, at the national level and from the federation level that, you know, you can, Um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think people misunderstand about equestrian sports because of its history of being exclusive. Um, Mm. You know, one of the things that I I'm never concerned about um, when I, when we go to these horse shows is, kind of the treatment that our athletes are going to get when they share the schooling ring, you know, with top riders. That's never a concern to me because I know that the way that they welcomed me um, and the way, you know, that when we do our class, um, you know, tons of spectators come to the ring, which you yeah. don't, you don't see that unless it's a hundred thousand dollar hunter derby or a big Grand Prix. Um, so, you know, I know that they're um, you know, that the equestrian community, does want to welcome this type of thing um, into the showground. So that, you know, that makes a huge difference. So you've mentioned you got into Brown, but we haven't really talked about um, your experience riding there on the team. uh, And you had your horse there as well. Can you talk about what it was like um, being in that team environment? Mm -hmm. Um, Amazing. Just amazing. That was the first time in my life that I ever got to experience being on a team in the most traditional sense. Um, So, you know, I had one thing about me going to college um, and going away from home was that being able to continue riding was a non-negotiable, you know, not, you know, not only for my mental health, but my physical soundness depended on it. So when I was touring colleges um, and such, you know, them either offering an equestrian program or an equestrian team or there being a hunter jumper barn that would have me in the vicinity was essential. Um, so when I toured Brown, besides the fact that I knew it was going to be my first choice from the second I got there, had an <laughs> NCAA equestrian team. Um, and so, you know, my thought was, I wonder if they would let me try out. Like I knew it wasn't getting recruited. Um, but I said, I wonder if they would let me try out for this sort of thing or if for liability reasons, you know, I'm not going to be a fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that turned out not to be the case. They couldn't, you know, the coach could not have been more welcoming, Um, tried out, was on the team. um, And it was, you know, a seriously transformative experience. Um, You know, I got the the friendships I developed with my teammates, you know, are going to be lifelong. um, And you know, it was just such a nice community to have. Um, it was, it was a rewarding thing to, if you had told me when I was in therapeutic riding that one day I would grow up to be a division one athlete, (laughs) you know, I never would have thought that that would have been true. And so I got the opportunity to feel, you know, like a college athlete and not have it kind of be like a discount experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing was that, you know, when we would go to IHSA shows, 
I think I competed in limit. I know that they changed kind of like the words and the divisions somewhat yeah. recently, but I think I competed in limit. Um, and I only, I only competed on the flat. Um, I just, for my own safety and for my own peace of mind, um, and my parents, I'm just not comfortable jumping a horse. I don't know. Um, no. So I only competed on the flat, but in those flat classes, they mount everybody in the center of the ring. So the judge has no choice, but to see me walk out in crutches, you know, the ton of effort that it takes for me to get onto a horse and the adjustments that need to be made. Um, But, you know, I never, whether or not it was, you know, something that was an advantage remains to be seen, but I know for sure it was never a disadvantage. Um, You know, I was never discounted because I was somebody who, you know, didn't appear to belong in the rest of the group. You know, once I'm on the horse, had the judge not seen that, she might've assumed that I was an able-bodied rider Mm -hmm. um, just based on how I ride and and my position and whatnot. So, um, you know, it definitely, it was something that, um, you know, I, I didn't have to go, to an IHSA show and be ashamed of, not that I would have been anyways, but um, I never felt like I had to try to hide how I got on um, mm. or, or what kind of things I needed. Um, so, you know, it was just, it was just a great experience. Um, actually relating this back to the previous question, um, part of how my relationship developed with the USEF was when the pandemic hit, um, the Brown Equestrian team was cut from Brown Athletics. Oh, wow. Um, this was days after I had been named captain going into my senior year. Um, and I thought to myself, well, now begins the campaign to get the Brown Equestrian team reinstated. (laughs) Um, so, you know, within a couple of days, I had gotten an introduction to Tom O'Mara, the USEF president, who is the father of multiple, you know, IHSA and NCAA equestrian athletes and completely understands the value of college equestrian. Um, so, you know, we enlisted his help to literally lobby Brown university and Brown athletics to reinstate the Brown equestrian team. And it took months. Um, and there were, you know, questions about it being a violation of title nine and whatnot, but basically mm-hmm. title nine aside, you know, if Brown athletics had the opportunity to reinstate but, you know, 11 teams got cut from Brown Athletics when wow. when the pandemic hit, not because of budget issues, but because the athletics department felt that certain teams were not excellent enough to deserve their varsity status. No, really? Wow. That was the yeah. excuse publicly that they gave? Yeah, that was the excuse. They said, wow. we're trying to improve excellence in Brown Athletics. So, you know, we're trying to make the, these are the teams that we felt have the potential to be the most excellent, you know. And so Brown the Brown Equestrian team was cut even though we were one of the winningest teams that Brown had, you know, the only team where every rider who rides in the IHSA, you know, nobody sits on the bench because of the vast, you know, number of levels. Brown Brown athletics does not have to waste any budget on a student athlete who might not ever play. Everybody who comes to a show is a game time player. Um, So, you know, that all aside, you know, when the Title IX restrictions, um, you know, would eventually demand that Brown reinstate a handful of teams, we wanted to make sure that Brown Equestrian would be mm. one of them and that the Brown Athletics Department would want to reinstate the Brown Equestrian team. And so that was how we really brought in, you know, the involvement of Tom O'Mara and the USCF, 
Bob Cashione from um, from the IHSA. Um, and so that was how the relationship started. And from there, you know, Tom and I developed a really good friendship and we continued to have conversations about my experience and what that might lend to Yusef in um, in developing more opportunities for writers with disabilities. That's great. Wow. Well, Jen and I are a testament to friendships made <laughs> over 20 years ago um, at South Carolina. We were on the team, the NCAA Division One team there. And yes, it was a great experience being a Division One mm-hmm. athlete. And I also, I wanted to go to school as a Division One athlete. I played um, ice hockey. So I, wow. had, I had looked at um, Boston College. But uh, when I walked on South Carolina's campus, I was like, oh, it's warm. It's beautiful. It's March. That's where I'm going. <laughs> to ride. Same. And, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So we totally understand what an amazing experience is and what kind of lifelong friendships you can develop through that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. T- I mean, I still talk to five or six of <laughs> our teammates weekly. And wow. it's been yeah. 26 years since we first met. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's yeah. great. We were co-captains of our team also. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a great experience. Um so you graduated and you work in public relations now. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of talk about um, your public relations job and and if there's anything that we can take from your job and transfer it into the equine industry, that would be like super helpful. Yeah. Um, so I work for the American Thoracic Society. Um, they um, are really dedicated to advancing, you know, global, just overall global respiratory health um, and making, helping the world to breathe better um, is really what they're all about. Um, So I would say right now, um, the overwhelming majority of the work that I do lives on social media. Um, That is, you know, without a doubt, the frontier. Um, Equestrian, I mean, Equestrian has in many ways been kind of ahead of the game in this front, but um, equestrian businesses need to live on social media, have social media, um, and, you know, understand that that is, as of right now, the preferred medium to reach a bigger audience or potential new clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that that is, um, you know, a major asset that a lot of folks don't realize. Um the other thing about social media is that it's important for the in equestrian community as a whole to capitalize on social media to improve its own awareness. Um, what This is maybe an area that at times the equestrian community has been behind in, um, in that, you know, especially, you know, at the turn, at the turn of the 2000s and especially since 2020, the prioritization of DEI, um, um, as and as you know, to be woven into the fabric of how we conduct equestrian sports is greater than ever. Um, mm-hmm. And so, social media can be a tool t- for folks in equestrian sports to have a better understanding of experiences that people who are different from them have in the sport, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of changes that are need to that need to be seen um, to improve the sport every single day. Um, you know, not everybody has the, you know, kind of imperative or the sense of urgency um, or the desire to make direct contact with the USCF. 
But a lot of people will air out their grievances on social media. Um, right. And so this is not to say that every single negative comment needs to be responded to. But, you know, you should use social media as a channel to reach voices that you might not typically have access to um, and hear from those folks. So I would say I would say that's definitely the biggest takeaway um, from my job in PR, because you know what? The truth is doing doing PR for the American Thoracic Society is so niche um, that at times it doesn't really feel like there are a ton of applications. um, But those are definitely like the core, I would say, principles that have rung true, at least, you know, in this sense that can be applied. Yeah. And so you've mentioned that you turn professional uh, for riding. What does that look like for you in terms of a business and mm-hmm. and the amount of time that you spend on it and balancing it with your job. Uh huh. Um. So, I turned professional, um, because I sort of had, I turned professional in the middle of the Hampton Classic last year. Okay. Um, <laughs> so kind of a fun and spur of the moment, but so glad I did it. Kind of thing where I'm a rule follower. I'm intense about it. Um, And so I felt odd being in the schooling ring with athletes um, and sending horses into the ring, giving lessons and such as an amateur. Right. Um, And so I felt that I don't show enough to really, really need to cling to that amateur status. Yeah. Um, You know, that's what it boils down to. And at the end of the day, um, I felt that it was in the best interest of not only myself, but in what I'm trying to do with the Special Olympics program and the athletes I'm trying to develop to turn professional. Um, So for me, it's really not, at least not yet, about growing a business of any kind. Um, I'm not currently making any money from giving lessons or all of the work that I do with Special Olympics is completely volunteer. Mm. Um, And I have my own horses and such, but I don't have any private clients. I don't have any sale horses. Um, I would love to get there. Um, but really the intention of me turning professional, um, is so that I can focus on cultivating riders with disabilities specifically. Um, so, um, I, that's really been the focus of it. Um, and you know, the other main thing is that since changing jobs from Special Olympics to the American Thoracic Society. Um, You know, the ATS has a hybrid work schedule. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, by far the, you know, the overwhelming majority of the time I work remotely. Um, And so for that reason, I moved upstate to Saratoga um, after living in the city my entire life, you know, (laughs) big change going from living in Manhattan to living in Saratoga. But, um, you know, when I was living in Manhattan, the only way for me to have access to horses was to commute to Long Island, yeah. um, which is easily a two plus hour commute each way. And That's because I, you know, working for Special Olympics was in person five days a week, I was back to that just on the weekends, um, you know, type of schedule. So um, living in Saratoga and being 20 minutes away from the barn that I board at, you know, allows me to, to do a lot, a lot more. Um, yeah. And so now that I'm, kind of, I, I moved up here in, I want to say end of February. So now that I'm really settled, um, and I'm, I've got two horses boarded nearby. Um, I would love to slowly start to make the transition towards, um, being able to have a number of students, um, who are in training with me or, um, have a couple of, you know, 
smaller scale sale horses. I'm not talking imports. I'm talking horses that can be produced for a lesson program. Um, you know, that type of, that type of caliber of, of horse and of kind of business. Um, I would love to get towards, towards that. That would, I would say would be the next phase, but, um, definitely my focus is on being able to serve riders with disabilities at this time. That's great. Yeah. So do you love Saratoga? I'm loving it. You know, I think so. My mom, um, she immigrated here from Hong Kong when she was 18. And so she has no idea what exists really outside of New York City and Long Island. So, you know, my my boyfriend um, is from up here. This is where he was, you know, raised. Um, and so when I told her I wanted to move upstate. I think she kind of, you know, thought like, upstate is this frozen wasteland. Like, who knows what's up there? You know, it's out in the sticks. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've been so, so, so pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, I, I had been to Saratoga a number of times. Um, growing up, I loved going to the yearling sale and going to the track. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Saratoga is such a young town. Um, so much going on. Great restaurants, great bars, great, just great. There's so much going on. Um, love going out. One of my favorite things to do is I think every Wednesday Wednesday, Thursday, or Thursday, Friday, the Saratoga Polo School, which is the next door neighbor of the Saratoga Horse Show, has polo that anybody can come and watch and stuff. And so um, I love going to watch that and kind of getting to know some of the polo, polo players there. Um, and it's been great. I've, I really love living upstate. Um, it's not, you shouldn't ask me that question when it's the middle of the winter, but at least for right <laughs> yeah. now, you know, it's been great. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my parents actually train racehorses up there at the oh, Sanderbeck no track. Yep. And my brother lives up. Um, they actually live in Glens Falls and he lives in Queensbury. So I do oh, spend, gotcha. uh, yeah, I do spend a lot of time up there. And I think it's one of my life goals is that I spend at least a couple of months in Saratoga every summer mm-hmm. because I love the racing and I love the horses and, yeah. you know, just the whole atmosphere of the town. And right. Jen and I love it's it when we come up. Town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and like you said, great restaurants. So that is um, one of my favorite things to do. I love Saratoga. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're sure. loving it too. <laughs> yeah, I really loved it. Um, you know, there's, I, I get a lot of pressure from my parents, from my family to move back, but I hate to say it. I really love being up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's probably helping you um, with your riding too, that you're able mm-hmm. to, Yeah. do you have, do you have any goals um, in your riding that you're looking to do? Um, I would say, um, you know, so like, we'll just call it what it is, right? Working the PR kind of corporate job is what funds me being able to do all this volunteer work. Um, and so, you know, as kind of that starts to stabilize, um, I would love to get back into showing somewhat regularly. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, I've never really actually ever been able to show in any type of regular form, Um, but you know, I would love to be able to go to shows outside of just, you know, a handful of summer, summer ones where, you know, my focus is on, on producing the special Olympics program. Um, I, I have two horses right now. Um, one of them who I would love to get consistent and show him in the USHJA, um, two foot. Um, he is so funny. Um, I've had him since 2018 and he's the type of warm blood that it's never the first time he passes something that he spooks at. It's always like the 10th or 11th time (laughs) when you're you're so sure that he's over it. He's Um, fine. So, you know, 
there, I, the only thing with me going to shows, um, is that, you know, I, I, I plan to ride for as long as I live. Right. And so mm-hmm. that one moment at one show, I always have to remember is not worth potentially compromising the next 50 years of me riding. Right. Um, so I have to be, you know, I'm, I'm not a timid rider by any means, but I have to be careful. Um, and so I just want to, you know, one of the things that's so that, you know, we all know to be true about horse showing is that the more horse shows you go to, the better you get at horse showing. And so getting, you know, to that critical mass of horse shows under your belt, you know, is where I'd like to get, you know, at some point. So I've got my one horse that I, that I'm hoping to do in the two foot. And then I have another horse that, um, he is rehabbing from an ICL injury and he, you know, knock on wood as I'm about to say this has been super, super sound, um, and just been really, really consistent. Um, so, you know, right now he's really, he's really solid and, and, and fit, um, and, and, and going really smoothly, um, as you know, he's in a, basically a full walk trot program. Um, and he's an older guy, so, you know, I don't ever intend to bring him back to jumping, but if he can ever get, um, you know, consistently fit and sound enough to be able to go in and do a flat class. I'd love to get him back in, into the ring. Even just like I said, the USHJA two foot under saddle, 18 inch under saddle, um, mm. you know, something, you know, that's the type of showing that I intend to continue doing as a professional. Um, I really don't have any desire to jump over two foot anymore. Um, I just feel like at, it doesn't, you know, the height of the jump is so meaningless to me as long as I'm able to execute solid technique over complicated poles or, or, or whatnot. Um, yeah. And so that's why it just made so much more sense for me to turn professional for what I want to do, especially since I have no intent, you know, sometimes at, in the USHJA, like at the two six or the two nine, you've got all these, all these pros warming up, you know, horses for a client or for a bigger class. And I don't need to be part of that. I'm so happy to watch, but I don't need to participate. So this is kind of <laughs> where I'm hoping to, to, to move. Yeah. And it's, I think a lot of people um, discount the number of riders who are in the position like you that just want those mm-hmm. levels of divisions. And, you know, not everybody has expectations of being able to jump three foot or three six or, mm-hmm. you know, making it, um, something that uh you know that that those are the right those are their goals so like i'm um, not going for any finals like i'm not qualifying for anything you know right yeah it's the experience that you want and um you know everybody's individual goals are just as important as anyone else's at these sure. shows. Yeah, so. I know. It, I, I think it's a lot about the experience. I I took my pony up to Saratoga last year. Jen, help me <laughs> <laughs> in the warm-up ring, set fences, and I did the point 80s. And it oh, was a I blast. Love it. And we had so so much fun. It's an easy pony yeah. to deal with. She was, you know, and, and it was fun. And it didn't matter where I finished or anything like that. It was just right. like being there, doing it, having fun, being with my friends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So well, that's great to hear. And um, it was so cool to talk more with you and learn more about your story and be able to share yeah. it with everyone. Absolutely. This was awesome. 
So at the end of each episode, um, we ask the guests the same four questions and Connor starts with the first. What is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? Try your best in school. It makes such a big difference in your life. Um, You know, I didn't expect even when I was in high school, which is not that long ago, you know, that I would ever turn professional or be able to do, be this involved with horses and horse showing. Um, And, you know, being able to get to Brown, have that experience to be on the NCAA team and have the knowledge in the back pocket to be able to balance having a corporate job with, you know, and the connection that having the corporate job sets me up to be able to do this. Um, you know, it's all because, you know, I prioritize school and I wanted to succeed. Um, you know, I always assumed that horses were going to be a hobby, um, something I'm passionate about, but something that was always second to my to kind of normal life. So um, I'm able to do it now because of, of, of how hard I tried in school. So um, people, a lot of folks think that you don't need to succeed in school to do well in horses. Um, and I would say, even if that is true, you should still try. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes you that much better rounded of a person with the breadth of knowledge that you get. Mm-hmm. And what is the best habit that keeps you motivated personally? I'm somebody who's highly responsive to feedback. Um, it's always it's been true in school from my teachers. It's been school, you know. It's it's also true in the workplace. Um, and so, if I know that there are areas of things that I do that have room to improve, I just have this innate hunger to want to make it better. Um, so, if you are, you know, just this is not to say that anybody should nitpick and, you know, try and find qualities that they can improve upon in themselves. But um, think about if there are things in your life that you love, such as horseback riding, let's just say, um, and you have goals and you want to succeed, think about what steps you need to take to get to that end goal. Um, you know, no one expects to go from learning to canter to jumping a three foot fence, you know, overnight. So first, you know, to, to outline the path to get to where you want to be. Um, yeah. is really, you know, a healthy habit. Um, you know, I learned, I know how to canter. I probably should figure out how to canter over a pole first. Right. And then from yeah. a pole, I might take it to a cross rail. Um, so just making sure that you can set goals for yourself and benchmarks along the way that are achievable. Um, so that, you know, you have the satisfaction of achieving those benchmarks and before you know it, you'll be where you want to be. Yeah. I think that applies in business as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like that you said though that like if you want to jump a jump, what are you what are the steps to that? And I think sometimes that's instead of looking at it and making your plan where it's like, okay, first I have to learn to trot, then I have to canter. If you say, okay, my end goal is X, then I have to do all of these things to get there, right? So mm-hmm. and maybe walk it back. So like for me, I always think of things as like this giant mountain to climb when I first hear about it. Mm-hmm. And um I've actually actually had somebody tell me, well, why don't you make the plan further out, like what your goal is, and then walk it back towards you. So what are the steps to come back? You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. same thing, you know. Absolutely. What's yeah, your favorite? Exactly what's your favorite horse movie? Oh, National Velvet. Um, <laughs> that was my favorite, favorite, favorite. I always, you know, I, I don't have one, but I've always loved chestnuts with chrome, as many do. And it's because my first horse that I ever fell in love with was the pie um, yeah. on National Velvet. So um, I've definitely, that's definitely where it comes from, you know, my bias towards chestnuts. Um, I just love that movie. Love it. And who would you recommend to be a future guest on this podcast? I would love to recommend one of my friends, um, Alex Marichik. She um, 
we grew up riding together on Long Island. Um, we're, I think she's a year or two older than me. Um, I've known her a really, really long time. We go way back. Um, and she has done so much. She's competed in the Hunters. She's competed in the U25 Grand Prix. Um, and over the last year and two years, her training and sales business has blossomed like you wouldn't believe. Um, and, she, you know, as a young professional, she is doing what I, what I assume every young professional who's trying to really like kind of make it in the industry, she's doing it. Um, and so it's really just remarkable the way that she's, she's taken on, you know, especially the Long Island kind of horse industry. Um, she has tremendously grown her business in the last year. Um, and it's, it's just kind of unbelievable. Um, not to mention the fact that she, um, is just somebody who is known in the community to, to exhibit expert horsemanship, um, sportsmanship on top of that. Um, and so she's just somebody for, you know, as, as far as young professionals go, that's definitely somebody who I think many, many people would, would try to emulate for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. So at the first Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular last year, Lauren gave a talk um, about the program that she started and had at the show. And then we had her back for this year's Women in Business Spectacular uh, to talk more in general about, um, you know, riders with disabilities and what people can do to help and and why we should be supporting um and like we immediately took to lauren like she's so fun to talk to and hang out with and she's such a great public speaker and she's so easily able to talk about you know how horses and riding changed her life and we're able to um you know, really improve uh, her quality of life physically and and emotionally. So we knew we wanted to have her on the podcast to share her story and be able to um, talk more about it. Yeah, she's super dynamic. I love that about her. And I, when I listen to her speak, she's one of those people who I feel like they're super passionate about what they do. Yeah. And and it comes so easily yes. to her to talk about it and talk about her story and talk about the program she's involved with. And I admire that so much. Um, I actually was watching uh, Fox um, Sports the other day with the racing going on at Saratoga. They mm -hmm. they have it. And we've had Maggie Morley on before. But when I watch that show, it's the same kind of thing you, you think of. Um, wow, these people, like they're just sitting up there having a conversation, commentating about it, like it's effortless. Yeah. And and I I look at Lauren and I think the same thing, like it's just effortless um, mm -hmm. And when, when she speaks about it. So uh, I'm glad that we got this opportunity to kind of get a little more in depth with her. Um, mm -hmm. I love that she went to Brown and she just went and tried out for the NCAA team and That's went for great. it, yep. you know? And, um, I, I just like her whole message, her whole personality. I just love. Same. Um, yeah, I, she's just fun and fun to talk to. Uh, and I thought, you know, being able to kind of explain, um, you know, the differences between 
therapeutic riding and Special Olympic riders and para riders and what it would take to get divisions for riders with disabilities, um, you know, on a more national level and have it be a regular division at horse shows was really interesting to hear. And, um, you know, like she says at the end of kind of finding the steps that you need to take in order to get to the goal. Uh, yeah. I think, I feel like she's doing that right now with, um, you know, her summer show series and kind of where she wants to grow the program from there. Yeah. And I like that she um, understands like the grassroots part of it and making that pipeline up yeah. to, to the A shows. So I appreciate that she can recognize the need for something at the gra- grassroots levels as well yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to support the program, which I think is really, really an important step. Yeah. I mean, and let's be honest, like, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of money to show at the A level. There's yeah. no way around that, but I would, I would guess that a majority of families who have riders or who, you know, who have kids with intellectual disabilities are already spending a lot of money on lots of different therapies for their kids or school or um, what have you. So, you know, riding and competing may not factor into the financial budget. So, um, you know, finding a way for them to be able to do this uh, is really special. And like she said, like Special Olympics pays for their riding lessons and, you know, offers so much opportunity for people that otherwise wouldn't have it. And um, yeah, it's really cool to see. We've seen the classes in Saratoga and um, like these are riders. These are, I mean, adults and children who like understand the competitive aspect of the horse show. They're mm-hmm. they're ready as prepared as any other rider at the horse show. So um and they're getting on horses that they may not know. Yeah, I, I remember donated yeah. horses. And yeah. Like Adele Einhorn from Saratoga horse shows uh donated her six year old horse <laughs> who like wins in in the professional divisions um, for one of the flat classes because he's so awesome to ride on the flat. And it was just really cool to see that and, um, and to recognize, you know, their abilities, not their disability. Yeah. Yeah. So I was very fortunate um, years ago when I was teaching lessons, which I don't do anymore because I like my amateur status, (laughs) but (laughs) about, about, Oh gosh, 10 to 15 years ago, I was teaching lessons at a barn and I had a young girl who had disabilities and they had recommended that she came for as part of her physical therapy to to ride. And her parents were familiar with horses. They grew up in the rural area around here and had a horse in their backyard and whatnot. So, um, you know, they were very supportive of this and she was she was great. Like she was one of the funniest kids and the improvement that riding made because she didn't have CP, but she was like on the spectrum of CP where like when she was 
she was younger. She had braces on her legs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So she riding helped her so much with her core strength. And uh, eventually her parents bought her a horse of her own. And <laughs> she she would terrify me a little bit sometimes, though, because she was so game. She'd be yeah. like, I want a canter. And when Lauren was kind of talking about, about yeah. that part of it, I was like, oh, yes, I remember those days where I was like, that first step into canter, like, yes. I was like, okay, hold on tight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and she every lesson, she'd be like, can I jump? Oh, man. <laughs> so I'd set up like a pole and yeah. that'd satisfy her for a while. But then she'd be like, no, I want to jump, jump. So then I'd like put up this little crossroad and her horse was a saint and he would like step over it. Uh-huh. Like he was really good. Although one day um, he... Uh, I don't know. He was like trotting in and, and he caught himself up in the jump and then he took like a big step and then yeah. he decided to canter and she went flying. And after that, she kind of settled down about the jumping part of it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I can totally see. I Like I had this picture in my head when Lauren was talking about that, but it, it really is like I've been so fortunate to to be involved. I have a cousin who has some disabilities and um, she had a race, a retired racehorse and what it what he did for her coming to the barn and she drove him every day for exercise and took care of him and it it helped with responsibility. So, you know, it's, it's just amazing to me what what the horses can do for people and Mm -hmm. Lauren's story. Like it blew me away when she said that once a week is all that she went and it gave, and it, and it helped that much. Yeah. 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 Really cool. Yeah. It was a great chat. Yeah. I'm so glad we were able to talk with her. Yeah. So am I. I know we've got busy schedules and everything's going on and my dog is had surgery last week so um, I got to go check on her so if you want to find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th You can find out more at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review so others can find us too. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now go support the Special Olympics. 